Welcome to the Jerusalem Jones Podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Hansen, a.k.a. Jerusalem Jones of Treasures in Time. That's my company, and this is my podcast. I'm a bit of a thespian, so let me bring history to life with a pinch of theatrical flair. Don't forget to subscribe as we plow into the past. This series is called Dig Deeper, the Untold Stories of Biblical Archaeology. Episode 8, Digging Up the Two Kingdoms. One of the most famous of all biblical sites, Megiddo, features prominently in the battle for Solomon. For if Solomon were everything he was made out to be, we would expect to find important traces of his kingdom at this ancient city. But while traditionalists insist that we have such evidence, our minimalist friends beg to differ. Israel Finkelstein claims that nothing at the site can be dated to the kingdom of Solomon. As for the six-chambered city gate, made famous by Israeli archaeologist Yigael Yadin, who compared it to the one he found at Chatzor, Finkelstein asserts that it actually dates to a good two centuries after Solomon. Those were the days when Israel's kingdom was divided between two tribes in the south and a ten breakaway northern tribes. Finkelstein argues that while we have remains there from the second and third millennium before the Common Era, and also Iron Age remains, Solomonic remains are conspicuously absent. Time for some detective work, right, Sherlock? How does anybody know who's right, Watson? Bear in mind, the Iron Age is divided into two periods, Iron One extending from roughly 1200 to 1000 BCE, and Iron Two from about 1000 to 550 BCE, exactly the time frame of the Israelite monarchy. The pottery from those periods bears distinct characteristics, and that's the main means of dating. Consider the earliest pottery forms from the 12th century before the Common Era, which are crude-looking pieces with a handle in the middle of the neck. But by iron, too, the painted treatment on most vessels had been replaced, first by hand-burnishing and later by wheel-burnishing. Various small palm-sized black juglets are particularly good examples of this, by late iron, too, the handles move further up the neck, toward the rim. Pottery from late iron, too, has a more globular and heavy look. In short, if a potsherd is fat and globular, with wheel burnishing, it probably dates more toward the end of iron, too, than the beginning. Such is the work of a true archaeological sleuth. Now, back to the debate. If the so-called Finkelstein correction is right, the real builder of Megiddo wasn't Solomon, 
but the notoriously evil King Ahab, who inherited the powerful Omrid dynasty that spread across the north of Israel with its ten breakaway tribes. Though reviled in the Bible, Finkelstein believes he was a magnificent builder. His predecessor, King Omri, who ruled from 884 to 873 BCE, was responsible for the foundation of the biblical city of Samaria, which has in fact been uncovered in archaeological excavations. But it was King Ahab, Israel's ruler from 873 to 852 BCE, who was said to have built a house for the pagan god Baal at Samaria. Yakem Mizbeach Lebaal, Bet Habaal, Asher Bana Bashimron. And he reeled up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. Known for having married the Phoenician princess Jezebel, he was subsequently confronted by the prophet Elijah, who forecast his doom. While doing battle against the Arameans, Ahab died on the battlefield. Archaeologically, he may possibly have been mentioned in the Tel Dan inscription. He's credited with the main building phase at Samaria, the Jezreel compound, and, if Finkelstein is correct, the palace at Megiddo. See here, Watson. Engaging in some interesting detective work, Finkelstein points to certain Ashler blocks that bear Mason's marks. There are only two buildings in Israel with such Mason's marks. The one at Megiddo, previously assumed to be Solomonic, and the Palace of the Omrids in Samaria. We are then left with two choices— Either we make the palace of the Omrids in Samaria Solomonic, or we make the Megiddo structure an Omrid palace. Finkelstein's conclusion post-date the Megiddo palace to the Omrid period. But is he right? On that, Watson, the jury is still out. Finkelstein would even go as far as to ascribe the Hatzor wall and gate, which Amnon Bentor insisted was Solomonic, to Ahab. Again, we ask, who's right, the minimalists or the traditionalists? As Finkelstein notes, Yadin's excavation of Hatzor in the 1950s and 60s uncovered significant evidence of the Umraid dynasty. A pillared building in the center is reminiscent of the so-called Megiddo stables, but there are no stone troughs for feeding animals. So it's interpreted as a royal storehouse. Amnon Bentor has defended Yadin, insisting that the remains at Hatzor have been dated not from the Bible, but via pottery and stratigraphy. Only then are such finds related to the Bible.
the gate, he declared, is from the 10th century BCE. That happens to go well with the biblical text. So why are we not allowed to make the connection? It may be fashionable today to make fun of Yadin as a fundamentalist of sorts, but he simply knew the gates and was struck by the resemblance to the biblical description. Bentor declared that as an archaeologist he is absolutely certain that the Hatsor gate is of the 10th century. Whether Solomon built it is somebody else's problem. Though Bentor never excavated at Gezer or Megiddo, he came to believe, like Yadin, that they are also of the 10th century. But regardless of the debate that still swirls around Chatzor, there are a number of other sites connected with the Umrides, including the city of Dan, far to the north. The excavations there, conducted by Avraham Biran of Hebrew Union College, revealed impressive Iron Age fortifications, a massive city gate, and a sacred sanctuary. A large podium measuring 60 feet on each side was also dated to the Umrid dynasty. In Finkelstein's view, it was in the days of the Umrid dynasty, during the early 9th century before the Common Era, that full statehood was reached for Israel's northern hill country. The archaeological data from Samaria, Jezreel, Megiddo, and Chatzor, as well as extra-biblical inscriptions confirm this. But in the latter part of the ninth century, due to pressure from the local region of Aram, the Amrite dynasty, as well as the Philistines, began to lose control over the wider area. Meanwhile, the kingdom of Judah grew in the south, continuing into the eighth century. Archaeological surveys reveal the sudden appearance of at least two waves of refugees from Israel in the north. More traditionally-minded archaeologist Amichai Mazar argues that both Judah and Israel emerged in the ninth century, not the eighth, and that Judah was poorer and smaller. Massive fortifications and sophisticated water supply systems such as those found at Megiddo and Chatzor, indicate great advances in the technology of warfare. Mazar uses archaeology to bolster our understanding of ancient Israel's religion, including its strong Canaanite ties and the prominence of the goddess Asherah. He also concludes that monotheism was apparently a late development. Continuing on in the historical record, we encounter King Jehoram, who ruled from 851 to 842 BCE. He's credited with defeating the Moabites, only to be wounded in battle while fighting against Aram Damascus. Apparently mentioned in the Tel Dan description, he's also credited with the destruction of the Jezreel compound and destruction layers in other sites in the north of Israel. 
When it comes to the later kings of Judah, in the Davidic dynasty to the south, there is abundant archaeological evidence of the growth of Jerusalem during the 8th century BCE. From the time of King Hezekiah, we have the so-called Broad Wall, built to withstand the siege of King Sennacherib of Assyria and unearthed in the 1970s by Israeli architect Nachman Avigad. It was long thought that the city in those days was confined to the fortified narrow hill south of the Temple Mount, the city of David. But this bit of archaeology demonstrates that by the 8th century, the city had expanded to include the hill west of the Temple Mount. Then there's a remarkable water tunnel, meticulously chiseled by ancient engineers to divert the Gihon Spring to the east of the city and bring it within the walls. The Bible ascribes it to King Hezekiah. למה יבואו מלאכי אשור, ומצאו מים רבים, ויתחזק, ויבן את כל החומה הפרוצה, ויעל על המגדלות, ולחוצה חומה אחרת, ויחזק את המילו עיר דוד, ויעש שלח לרוב ומגינים. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he purposed to fight against Jerusalem, he took counsel with his princes and his mighty men to stop the waters of the fountains which were without the city, and they helped him. So there was gathered much people together, and they stopped all the fountains and the brook that flowed through the midst of the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? And he took courage and built up the wall that was broken down and raised it up to the towers and another wall without and strengthened Milo in the city of David and made weapons and shields in abundance. Second Chronicles 32, 2-5 An ancient Hebrew inscription found in Hezekiah's tunnel relates the story of its construction. The tunnel exits at the Siloam Pool, marked today by Byzantine-era stonework. Beyond Jerusalem, we find fortifications at Lachish, and we also find its subsequent destruction. And we find prosperity in the Beersheba Valley, 7th century evidence from the days of the wicked king Manasseh includes 
demographic growth in the Beersheba Valley and the Judean Desert, as well as the possible construction of the fort at Kadesh Barnea, we also have growing evidence of literacy. Also in Jerusalem, we have the Katef Hinom tombs dating from the 8th and 7th centuries before the Common Era. Bodies were laid out on benches with U-shaped headrests along the walls. All the bones were later moved to a repository chamber below. In the fourth of several burial caves on the Katef Himon escarpment, archaeologist Gabriel Barcai, during his excavations of 1979 and 1980, turned up two amulets dating from the late 7th century BCE. Each amulet contained a rolled-up sheet of silver, which, when unrolled, revealed the priestly benediction as recorded in the biblical book of Numbers, chapter 6, verses 23 through 26. Yevarecha Hashem Ya'er Hashem panavalecha, ve'yechunecha, yisa Hashem panavalecha, ve'yasem lecha, shalom. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the scrolls, the blessing is only slightly abbreviated. Yevarechacha Hashem veyishmerecha, Ya'er Hashem panavelecha, veyesemlecha, shalom. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. They're dated to around 600 BCE. That's interesting, since Revisionist scholars claim that the Bible wasn't composed until the 2nd century BCE, the Hellenistic period. Philip Davies of Sheffield University, ever the skeptic, insisted that anyone using two tiny scrolls to prove the age of the Bible is clearly incompetent as a historian. The rule is always that you ascribe the latest and not the earliest possible date. Moving on historically, it was not long after the composition of the tiny silver scroll that the kingdom of Judah was overrun by the Babylonians. The city was destroyed, and in the year 586, before the Common Era, the great temple Solomon had constructed was burned to the ground. The fabled Ark of the Covenant was lost track of entirely, though rumors persisted that it had perhaps been buried in the tunnels and caverns underneath the temple, or perhaps rescued by the prophet Jeremiah and hidden in a cave in the desert. Suffice it to say, no trace of it has ever come to light. The biblical record relates that the people survived in captivity for a good 70 years, 
until the Persian Emperor Cyrus issued an edict allowing them to return and rebuild Jerusalem and even the temple. All the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me. And he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whosoever there is among you of all his people, the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Second Chronicles 36, 23 An important archaeological artifact, the Cyrus Cylinder, contains some 36 lines of text appearing to bear witness to the biblical account. According to some, it establishes beyond doubt that it was Cyrus's policy to return exiles to their settlements and make permanent sanctuaries for the gods of the exiled peoples. On the other hand, this interpretation has been disputed since the text identifies only Mesopotamian sanctuaries and makes no mention of Jews, Jerusalem, or Judea. We have little archaeologically from the city's rebuilding in the days of the high priest Ezra and the governor Nehemiah, but we do have evidence of the subsequent Hasmonean dynasty, which rose up to expel the Seleucids of Syria during the Maccabean Revolt of 168 to 164 BCE. The success of that revolt is, of course, the origin of the Jewish festival of Hanukkah. Among Hasmonean-era remains, we have the tomb of Jason from the late 2nd and 1st centuries BCE, as well as possible remnants of a Hasmonean palace. Along the base of Jerusalem's current city wall fortifications, we find remains of Hasmonean-era walls. Still visible today is a seam in the masonry of the east side of the Temple Mount, showing the joint between the masonry of the older Hasmonean Temple Mount and the later extension in the Herodian Age. It was Herod, King Herod, who remade the whole of Israel in his autocratic image. And two millennia later, his monumental structures still dazzle the eyes and boggle the mind. The archaeology bears out the assessment that no king or potentate could compare to both the brutality and the splendorous legacy of King Herod the Great.